Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. City Zero is over. It's time to eat your head. Uh, Andy, it's a new year. Uh, I guess it's already been a new year as we record this, it's, right? It's been a new year it's for a little a while now. Yes, it has. But, uh, you know, it, it's still a new year. And as long as we're going to leverage new year stuff, uh, it's it's time to reflect on the old year. 
And uh, our partners at Letterboxd have a fantastic way to do just that. You know, what's great about Letterboxd is they have, uh, when you're a member and you're, you, you're a paid member of either the pro or patron membership level, you get your stats page and you can find out all sorts of interesting bits about, you know, what you watched over the, over the, over your whole time on Letterboxd or any individual year. And it's really interesting to look back and see not just like how many movies you watched and uh, how many movies you rewatched, but also like, you know, how many, um, how many countries have you seen movies from? What years have you seen more movies from than other years? What genres are you typically favoring? They have a whole thing with like list progress where they list all sorts of different lists like the letterbox top 250 afi 100 years 100 movies edgar wright's thousand favorite movies and it gives you your progress on all of those different lists it also gives you like stars and directors and crew and studios and all these different things so you can see who who, which actor which director have i seen in more projects than any other and it's it's really interesting there's just a lot of interesting stuff that you get when you're at those levels so you can really dig into all of that. I mean, I know people who use that to say, okay, I'm going to try to see, you know, one movie at least from every country in the world, things like that, you know, or look at it and say, okay, I've seen too many films from this director. Who can I watch some more films from so that I can bump that director out of my uh, top 20 directors? (laughs) Are you movie watching with it? That's like rage watching. What are you doing? I, there, there is somebody that uh, that is in the Flick Charges group. Anyone who's uh, listening to this and and follows that group knows there's a particular person who really is unhappy that Ron Howard ended up in his top twenty directors <laughs> and is doing everything movies. in his power. He's trying to watch more films from other directors to bump Ron Howard out. That's fantastic. What is your what is your average? I don't want to out you for how many movies you've watched, but in your letterbox stats, you do have a block for films by week. And I'm curious what your current your 2020 average films per week was. 2020. Well, um, let me open that up, and I you will. You didn't tell even you. have it open. I was looking at my a life in film page, not uh-huh. my 2020 uh-huh. page, but my life in film. I have seen at least that I've uh, accounted for four thousand. 831 films and that and that includes short films you know because there are a lot of short films in here so that's the all-time tab is that that's the yeah that's what it is so i'm at 2942 and uh, i bet you're closer i bet you're closer to me than that it's just (laughs) you have not gone through i'm not closer to you in your addiction to stats but i am probably closer (laughs) to you than that Yes, in your total number. I bet if you went through Letterboxd and you you a- added every single thing you've seen. I okay, okay. So this is what I want to know. For your, your this 2020 average films per week. Yes. What is it? Average films per week, 8.8. 8.8 films per week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're also you. You're a little lax on your entries. I'm very lax. It's it's actually it's so disappointing looking at this. That this is why you become a member is because of the delight in actually tracking all the things that you watch and to to stifle the regret you feel when you haven't been tracking the films that you watch. Because I'm at like one point <laughs> six, and that's not accurate. <laughs> that's that's pretty light for you. That is very light. Yeah. What is so? Go back to your life in film. One more stat I want to know from you. Okay. Um, the how? What is the highest number in your films by release year that you have ever watched? In any particular year? Yeah. So it has this funny uh, little bar graph, and yep, it goes yep. from 1896 to 2021 with a oh. nice little bar graph. And there is going to be one year that's higher than the rest. What is Mine it? goes from 1878, because apparently I've seen something in 1878. 1878? <laughs> yeah. I have a feeling <laughs> I it's I was the... with 96. <laughs> I have a feeling it was the, the, the horse, you know, the whatever's the oscilloscope where you watch the horse galloping. I think that's probably what it was. But if I look, I had a couple big years in the late 90s. But then it looks like um, 2016 really shot ahead. And that's at 138 films from 2016 that I've seen. Mine is 2013. 
And I don't know what it is about 2013. I was looking at it in the first film. First film, apparently, that I, I guess this is this is by release date. The first films I yeah. watched that were released in 2013, Nymphomaniac, Volumes 1 and 2, which I think you probably... Avoided. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff you get at letterboxd.com. That's a fantastic service. If you visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd, that will redirect you straight to our letterboxd. Uh, partner page where you can sign up for either pro or patron with a 20% discount uh, and uh, you can uh, join the fun at Letterboxd and you know if you're a member of our community uh, you can reach out to me in our Discord community and I'll even la- add your Letterboxd pro- reviews profile to uh, our automation so that your reviews will automatically drop into our uh, Letterboxd uh, reviews channel for two Reeler members and uh, that's another fun way to Share your reviews and make sure that they're that, that you're getting the proper proper notice uh, for all of your hard movie watching work. Uh, Absolutely, we'd, we'd love to have your support at Letterbox and over at the Next Reel, and it's just like it's an Oreo cookie of goodness. Uh, okay, Andy. We're we gonna zero grad. <laughs> zero grad. Um, the first of all, I'll just get this out of the way. This movie made me want to watch Brazil again hard. <laughs> it's it is. There are certain movies where this fits into, and and what it what it did for me is like I felt like I was watching a David Lynch film. Like nothing made sense in this strange yeah. world, and I was like, uh, wh- "What is happening here?" And it just felt so Lynchian throughout. And I think Gilliam, Gilliamish, Gilliamesque. Uh, we've never termed, yeah, determined what Gilliams would be. I don't think we have. Is it just <laughs> Gillish? Gillish. <laughs> Uh, this is this movie takes place in and is made in and talking about a really interesting time in in that sort of the gap years between uh, Soviet and post Soviet Russia and uh, and and I think that uh, I I'm like you I had no idea what was going on in the movie <laughs> like nothing but it starts to come into focus as you start reading a little bit about it and thinking about the the again the context that in, under which this film was made and that uh makes it uh, i think a much more interesting film yes there's a lot of absurdity in in the movie but but it it is representative of things that people living in these cities at this time might have been feeling right that now that i'm i'm past watching the movie i can i i sort of uh, I, I get it. I understand possibly their confusion. They're just day to day buckle shuffle work a day confusion at how to how to live. Like, how do you how do you move forward from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. on any given day? And for that, I think this film is um, is fascinating, especially because they're as you know, our, our protagonist here uh who is very much kind of representative of the kind of the general Soviet populace at the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of the different characters in the film represent really kind of the two different sides of the of kind of the way things were, where you have some people who are very much still of the old school mindset, and then you have some people who are more of the the more modern mindset. And uh, our character just is lost in the shuffle between all of that and it just you know it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like he has a place and it was an interesting it was one of those films where you watch and you're like what is happening i just didn't really get it but looking at uh, some articles and stuff afterward i was like oh okay yeah that makes a lot more sense now it did feel like at times there were elements within this film that probably would have made a lot more sense if i had been a soviet at the time watching this because especially the museum scene i just felt like i don't know what any of this represents i feel like there's something here i don't know if it's just a lot of in jokes i don't know if it's a very pointed social commentary 
it was just a lot of Russian stuff. <laughs> it's just like, I'm not quite sure. Well, a lot of Russian stuff. And I mean, how did you know? Did you do you do you know when you realized that there was something going on that you didn't understand? Well, I, I mean, initially I was like, OK, well, obviously this is like a an alternative facts type of museum, because the first thing that he shows is like this this coffin from the Trojan era when the Trojans had moved up to Russia afterward, as he said. And 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 here's yeah. here are his remains. You have this coffin. So I was like, OK, well, this is going to be kind of a a tour of uh, a lot of falsehoods throughout this museum. But then there were some elements and like the rock and roll stuff. I was like, okay, well, that's obviously, uh, you know, a bit of fiction here. But then there were some things where they were talking about some generals and some different things. And I was just like, okay, I, is this, are they, is this something that really happened? Like, I just didn't know some of those sorts of elements. Yeah. Right. Right. And what's interesting about all of the, that, that for me, it was the Romans and the, <laughs> I thought that yeah. was really, really funny. And I realized that over the next like three or four minutes of film, I'm missing like a thousand in jokes. Um, but where it plays with, I think some of the, some of the cultural history and the challenges of cultural history is in the stuff like the rock and roll. Like we know that the, the, like we just, there's no reason to believe that there is any um, like truth to the actual events, but what it represents is the introduction of outsider cultural um, elements into this system that had been closed for so long. And people had to figure out how to engage in these new elements without fear. And that, I think, is a fascinating thing, particularly at the when you look at uh, one of my very favorite sequences in the movie is the 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 um, the old the older versions of everybody are now in the dance hall. Oh, when the new dance hall is opening up in dedicated to the chef, <laughs> because he was the one who first danced rock and roll in the in the 50s. Exactly. In 1957. Um, and so here we have. All of these people that we've seen throughout the movie, and let me just say, are, are like from a, a, a scene structure, from a, an architecture perspective, it's great. They move the camera through and they have, they block all of these characters so perfectly, so effortlessly that it, it's, it just feels uh, totally natural that we would see all of these faces when we see them. And yet I was surprised at every single turn. I thought, oh, that's great. I remember him from like 20 minutes ago and he was there and hey, you were there. Like it was just really uh, uh, smart directing. But um, I, I just love that sequence because they're all figuring out how to, uh, they've all Im like figured out how to embrace rock and roll and it's this guy who this outsider who comes in who's like kind of shy about the fact that yeah he's he's danced rock and roll before uh and he's embarrassed now being on stage but this community has totally now embraced it and they're all you know the the one thing they want him to do is stand on stage and dance rock and roll because <laughs> they all think he's the son of the first dancer of rock and roll in their city uh which is just like all of that is great for me. I had a blast with that kind of stuff. It was all very fun stuff. And and it just keeps going because then you have his, uh, what was he, the prosecutor general, or I believe, yeah. who is, you know, he, he's the one who tells uh, Varrican not to leave town because this is actually a lot bigger. It's not just a suicide. It's a lot bigger. It's a murder story. Yeah. And it, it kind of spirals from there with this whole murder, suicide of the chef and all this sort of stuff, which absolutely we have to talk about because it's so crazy yeah. but then at this dance thing it's like he is the one who as we had learned opposed the chef when the chef danced rock and roll back in 1957 which led to kind of him um getting removed from his uh, military service and all this sort of stuff and the the girl she swallowed acid because she was so um distraught with all the stuff that happened back then and now he's the one who still can't move forward and his solution is to get on stage and try killing himself which fails because his gun doesn't work at all which i i just couldn't help but feel like there were a lot of other elements that they were kind of pointing out with the fact that this is the one person who can't do it and he he can't he can't just kill himself to get away from it. It's like he's stuck there, yeah. you know. It, 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 I just found it to be a really interesting way to kind of bring that sequence to kind of a, a head. 
Well, and just like Breakin, uh, like he was stuck there, and that's we've seen all the you know, like the entire movie. It's like you're never going to leave. You're going to die here. You know, we have the little uh, fortune telling yeah. kid who says you're going to die here. You're ne- you can't get out of the city. You're going to die in 2015 or whatever <laughs> right. it was, yep. and it'll be here. Uh, and then we get and this was a surprise to me when he stands on stage and puts the gun to his temple and tries to shoot it, and then takes the 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 cartridge out and it's full of rounds, and he puts it back in and he tries to do it again and it does not work. I, I was torn with how to feel about that. Was that an was that a commentary on a breakdown of uh, manufacturing in post Soviet Russia? Uh, because we need to talk about the air conditioning backs uh, in just a minute. Uh, or was that insinuating some sort of fantasy mysticism around you can never leave? Like everybody is stuck there. Even the gun won't work when you try to get out by killing yourself. Um, and and maybe it's somewhere in between. I don't know. Do you have any sense? I, you know, I that was something else. That, and I guess this is why I, I say it's Lynchian because it has a lot of these things happen that aren't necessarily explained. Like also, the secretary like licks her lips because it's almost like she's turned on yeah. and he's trying to kill himself. So there are odd things like that. That that was the most Lynchian yeah. of Lynchian moments. Like, in I'm this like, I don't quite get thing. what these are, yeah. and so it, it does make me think about it and talk about it and stew over it. And I. I, it, that excites me in a film, even if I can't always figure out what it means. But I, I like what you're saying about the possibility that it's a, it's representative of of the society and how you know you just it's not something you can get away from. It's something that you're going to have yeah. to uh, you just deal with. So it's it's an interesting so, way to explore it, all of this with such um, odd uh, kind of surrealist imagery. So because it relates, because the gun relates, let's let's jump into the air conditioner sequence um, in the beginning uh, real quick. Yeah. Um, so he breaking this. He's sent to the city uh, because he works for a company that takes air conditioning units from this company that is located in this city. His whole and, reason for coming. Right. The whole reason that gets him to town. He gets on the train. He comes to town. It's a rainy t- town. He comes in and he. Um, he goes to the office um, because he needs to talk to them about the backs, the back panels on the air conditioners. And the reason he has to talk to them is because they are no longer subsidized by the state, which is a big deal, right? That's kind of a hidden um, uh, sort of a linchpin to the whole story, right? That it is another example or it is our first example of things falling apart, right, under under glasnost under changes in in culture changes in business changes in state support all of these things that's our first hint uh that that things are kind of well maybe not our first hint it happens during their conversation the first <laughs> hint he walks into the office and the secretary in the office is stark naked sitting there like nothing is wrong in the world right and she's typing away answering the phone taking papers yeah no one else the other person who comes in doesn't notice it at all doesn't notice it at all right? it's only varakin who notices it right and he's he's uh, obviously he's he's an outsider he is shocked by this strange happening um but he manages his way through the uh through the engagement with her and gets in to talk to the manager and the in their conversation we find out that not only um uh, do does the the company not have an immediate answer they don't have an immediate answer because their chief engineer drowned eight months ago and <laughs> nobody knew it but the secretary right which is another great example of things falling apart like when there is no authoritarian state overseeing the jobs of every person it's that you can go eight months without knowing you don't have a chief engineer because everybody they they were they were in this sort of liminal space. They didn't know. They didn't care. They didn't understand. Whatever it it is, things falling apart. And I thought that was particularly curious. It also made me think of Chernobyl and the way that people would choose not to like say things or would choose not to um report something or or force something to happen um because of something because they needed to keep moving you know it had that sort of vibe as well where you know they just got to keep this company moving and so the fact that the chief engineer drowned we can't we can't stop moving because of that so we're just going to keep plugging along and just you know 
just pretend it didn't happen. And we're going to put on this front like everything's normal, like it it had that sort of air as well. Well, and the fact that that it's okay for us not to change, right? Because the implication of not having a chief engineer is not being able to change anything in their manufacturing line. And right. that that he in this leadership position was okay with um, with everything, you know, as you say, just being normal to him. And yeah. um, so I, I think that's an interesting insight on this. In fact, there are a couple of those weird lascivious Lynchian looks like the one we talked about with the suicide potential suicide scene. There's another one here with the naked secretary. Uh, she doesn't lick her lips, but I don't think it's any less weird. No, when he when she's uh, when he comes out after talking to the uh, the head of the company, he uh, she's standing and she's over by the window watering all the plants with her pitcher, and she's kind of like pouring the water into her hand and kind of using that to kind of drizzle the water and everything. And he's watching her like I know it's just it's such a weird moment because he's just, he you could tell he's just looking at her like I have no idea what is going on here. And she just turns and looks at him and just has kind of a stare for a moment. And I'm like, okay, that's the whole thing. It wasn't like a sexual look. It wasn't like, uh, why are you staring at me sort of look. It was just kind of just returning his stare. And it was, it was a weird little moment that, that lasted longer than I would have expected. Yeah. Longer than it, you know, sort of quote should have. Yes. It, it It felt very strange. Right. Uh, a number of those things in the movie. I, so I think they, that are set up there, that manufacturing's falling apart, that he came all the way to the city only to walk out having the director told him, uh, telling him, you know, come back in two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. We'll have a news chief engineer, I promise, that it's going to take him two yeah, weeks. Don't worry about it. There right. is no second person already in charge, right? Like, shouldn't there be somebody who just steps up? No, it's going to take us two weeks to figure that out. Yeah. It's, and, you know, just speaking to just that and the nature of kind of the pace and everything and these decisions, two weeks and all this sort of stuff, it also speaks to just the overall pace of the film because right from the beginning, it's really leisurely paced uh film like the director very purposefully has long long takes like you're watching when he arrives on the train it's you're staring at him get off but then he leaves frame the train leaves the camera is just like kind of lingering at the at the the station and it's an odd shot just kind of watching the train roll away and same thing with the when when the cab's out front like it's a shot of just his briefcase sitting in a foggy rainy street for a bit before you know before he walks back in and picks his briefcase back up and then a cab pulls up and it's just like there's a lot of these real leisurely paced scenes even the hotel like everything and it seems almost disinterested in whether he's in the frame or not like we're not following yeah. him it's not he's not the purpose of of what we're looking at like in his hotel room it like drifts over to something else and it's just sitting on some like the corner of the room for a bit it just it it seems like it's trying to figure out you know what to what to focus on almost and that's kind of how it feels like even in these conversations and in the scenes where they're exchanging looks or just talking about the amount of time things will take. It just everything seems to have that same sort of pace. But he's sort of an accidental protagonist yeah. in a movie about something else uh, that's much more sort of institutional. It, it is a movie that that I think successfully and comedically demonstrates a largely sort of community malaise. Uh, it, in just the the shots that he chooses to capture the wet streets the the dog running through i mean it's just all of that stuff is it's kind of filled with fatigue and a little bit of sadness and oh very um, gray very bleak yeah yeah and and yet the people seem to be um happy enough that's the thing i don't i mean yeah i think people generally seem happy but i i just think in general he's the only one who notices anything happening Everyone else who's in it seems like they're part of this, you know, false machine that this town has become. Yeah. Just kind of moving through whatever it is they're doing, uh, whether it's, you know, whether they're happy or not, you know, because it just it seems like life is going on. You know, when you, when we meet the author, I mean, he's he seems chipper. The the uh, engineer at the museum he and his wife seem fine with their weird little kid. You know, everyone seems totally, totally uh, 
I don't know if normal is the right word, but they seem like they're progressing with their lives as if nothing is out of the ordinary. Okay, out of the ordinary. You mentioned the museum again, and I forgot a point. Was there a reason beyond budgetary that all of the people, all of the figures in the diorama uh, that he's walking through were real people? With the exception of, I think, a few cardboard cutouts, but most of them were real people. I expected something to happen and nothing ever really happened. Yeah, I think it was purely a budgetary thing. I kept thinking the same thing. In fact, my thought when I was watching this is like, oh, I bet this is going to end with him now being added to this weird museum yeah. made of real looking people. But I think, totally. yeah, but I think you're right. I think it was largely a budgetary thing. I mean, making a wax museum is a fairly challenging thing to kind of accomplish. You know, it, that's a lot of work to make all these actual wax right. statues and things. So I think that they just dressed everybody up to look like wax. And, uh, but I thought it was interesting because there is actually a point where Varrican, who, as he's watching and looking at these, different dioramas that they're passing through he's just still staring at them and has kind of a waxy look on his own face and i was just like okay that's interesting are we saying that you know he himself is as much a part of this as they are of of reality and that um you know it's almost like they're all looking at each other in some strange fashion but I don't think I don't think it was anything creepy. Like I never saw eyes moving to watch him or anything like that. I didn't either. It was just occasionally you'd catch somebody breathing, you'd catch right. them wobbling. Yeah, as they're some people were better than others. <laughs> yeah, and the kids at the end, their yeah. kids looking up, and I think one of them yawned and took a bite of a candy bar. Like, okay, we get the intent. Um, so uh, we we're a half hour into it. We haven't talked about the restaurant scene yet, but I feel like we need to get into that. Yes. Yeah, so he so he's decided. Okay, well, I'm going to come back. I'm going to try to get a train to Moscow. I'm going to go eat, and. When he's eating, um, first of all, he walks uh, like right after he orders. And another couple comes in and sits down and his waiter turns around and said, I'm sorry, but we're it's break time now. And he, he escorts them out and then locks the door, essentially. <laughs> and then a band starts playing. <laughs> have, behind a wall, a hidden wall. Behind a hidden wall as our, as our protagonist is eating his food. And then the waiter brings out his, uh, his tea and a cake. And he specifically had said, I, I don't want dessert. But he said, oh, it's a cake. The chef made it for you. Uh, it's free. He just he he looked at you and felt. I can't remember what he said, but your face was so. Um, oh, here he said. He said our chef baked it especially for you. The like he likes the look of you. Uh, <laughs> there he is. He yeah. says he finds you sympathetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's peeking. There he is peeking at you around the corner, and there he is. There they cut to the chef right. peeking around the corner. <laughs> because when they reveal so the cake, weird. it is a cake made of Varakin's head, and yeah. <laughs> they cut a quadrant out of it and put it on a plate for him. And he he says, "I'm not hungry. I don't want to. I'm leaving." And says, "Don't do it." If you do it, the chef said he'll kill himself. And he's like, oh, this is nonsense. And he starts leaving. And then he hears a gunshot, turns around. The chef has shot himself in the chest and falls over and dies. And, uh, you know, and that that's just such a strange moment. And, you know, then another waitress comes uh, in and screams. And, uh, and then we find out later through the prosecutor. Now the prosecutor thinks that this was actually a murder and paints this whole scenario of how it's actually a murder designed to have Varakin see it and think it's a suicide and goes through the whole, um, which I thought was interesting, of the replay, almost as if Varakin is talking to him about it and then pauses. And it's a freeze frame as they talk about it. And uh, then then uh, the prosecutor kind of spins his own version of how these other chefs were actually trying to kill this chef. And <laughs> so many chef assassination plots, um, yeah. which, which is amusing. The other thing is that they're trying to build is they're trying to say that that the chef is actually Varekin's father. Which, yeah, that also comes out, right. When when the chef and Varekin are, they look roughly the same age. Well, and that was one of those things. I was like, okay, I think it's just one of those things where they're just casting the person. Because he also was the yeah. one in the 1957 film and in the museum 
And I think that they were just trying to make him look younger there and make him look a little older when he was the chef. So, I, I, yeah, it was it was one of those. Oh, weird you don't things, think there, you don't think there was an, uh, a play on just sort of the because um, I'm I'm watching this thing and I'm thinking this is their tur- that that's absurd. There is no way those two people are related, and yet they're going to try to to push this story. Um, because they need it to fill a convenient hole in the police state that is hanging on by its fingernails to <laughs> its old reality. Yeah, right. Right? Like, there, there is some sort of a statement to be made there for me. Yeah, like you're connected. And, and that's why the guy tries to kill himself, because he doesn't have anything left to hold on to. Like, he realizes how ridiculous all of this is, and yet everybody, I mean, it's an emperor has no clothes story, and Everybody is staring at each other and they don't notice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. It's a it's a weird little scene. It's it's an odd one about, you know, the idea of of imagery. And here he is like with this offer to eat this image of himself and this whole idea yeah. of, you know, what's that saying? And and just I don't know. I, I think that there was a lot of interesting stuff going on here in this particular scene about just kind of this nature of, I don't know, just the absurdity of uh, just the way everything was playing out and this this need to kind of uh, craft an image almost like who, you know, who are we and and force this I- ideal that, you know, you are a son of this, of this, you know, new Russia sort of thing. And so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, it really intriguing and really creepy. Well, we, we got to I mean, I, I feel like that takes us to the last sort of big moment uh, of of the film that is sort of representative of the same thing. Right. Letting go of being able to let go of the old in favor of of the new and and what the old has become. And that is their time at the tree, uh, the tree that they say is twelve hundred years old. Um, and it has been uh, that that uh, it's a tree where if somebody takes a piece of it, they become the leader. and in order to become the leader after them, you have to kill them and take a piece of your own tree. I'm sure I've got the mechanics wrong there. Yeah. Well, it was all because some famous general had sat under this tree and yeah. all this sort of right. stuff. And well, and and we should just preface this because I think that this scene is as important as the scene right before, which precedes it when they're in the all hotel. in uh, Varakin's room and he's in his room and then the mayor and uh i can't remember what the councilman or something come over to talk to him and uh the prosecutor comes in and his boss or not his boss but the owner of the factory comes in and then these three women who had called him come in to party and the neighbors come in because they hear music and it's just like this endless flow of people coming into this room that all oh it was the it was the woman that his that had danced with the chef back in the 50s comes in with her son that was the first couple that comes in um mm-hmm. and because she wants to talk to him and all this sort of and pass on some heirlooms and it was just this such a strange scene to kind of like everybody just keeps arriving and it's like everybody found something important about and and some draw to this character like they all needed to be in his presence and they all needed to kind of have their moment and sing the songs and all this sort of strange stuff which leads to the scene at the tree, which yeah. is, it's all kind of leading into that and the idea of, of leadership. And, and what, a what I was like, what are they saying that in order to be the leader, you need to take a branch from this. And then everybody wants a branch and everybody gets a well, branch. Because the, the, he tries to take the little branch, this incredibly symbolic tree and the entire giant limb falls and nearly <laughs> crushes him and then everybody jumps on it as as the the police guy who's now wearing a bright yellow coat <laughs> sport coat which i think is very funny and and says it's oh it's rotten and what an incredible symbol that is just like that that nobody recognizes that this 1200 year old tree is dead this symbol of their history is dead and has fallen to the ground, and all they want is a souvenir of right. that history. There's just no respect in this scene for what that thing really is, and it ends up being played as comedy. And I think that's fascinating, the the way that's played off. And then, of course, the prosecutor says, run. Right. You need to just run. Yeah. And so Breakin runs. And 
does he get out? He's in a boat. He finds a boat. He pushes off and has no oars. He runs through till morning. He gets in. He finds a, I don't know if it's a river or a lake, but a body of water with a boat, hops in, no oars, pushes off. And we end with him floating in the water in the fog. Basically just floating in nothingness with no yeah. way to direct himself. <laughs> How'd you feel about that? It was a very uh, sharp ending. Like, clearly, the filmmaker is saying something here. You know, this is yeah. a, a, a person who is lost adrift in a fog of nothingness. Like, there, what is the future? Is he truly going to end up still stuck in this town until he dies in 2015, like the little kid had had uh, uh, predicted? Or is he going to escape? Or is it just, you know, this is the feeling that people in Russia have at this time where they're just like, you know what? Who knows? We don't know anymore. We just don't know anymore where any of us are going, what the point is, how things are going to shake out. And we're just going to have to see. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, we're, we are, we stand rudderless yep. before you, world. We stand rudderless. I thought it was great. I do want to, at one point I wrote down, and I'm just checking the time on it. If you go back to the hotel room, at about an hour 20, it starts with this single shot that does not move. And I'm now at an hour 27. And the girls are singing, and the guys from next door have now come in. And we still haven't changed shots. Uh, hour 27 and a half like it's still playing yeah that's a long long shot um and i think it's i think it's a fascinating structure because it starts with it's pretty open with varekin and the the woman sitting on the opposite sides of the couch because we've already established where they are and then the room feels like it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller as so many people show up and they have guitars and then they ask him to sing, and he starts singing a song that yeah. everybody jumped right. into, and and yeah, really interesting. I also really thought it was, I, I was like, what is it? What are they saying here when he wants to speak to the mayor because the mayor seems like maybe he can actually help him get out of this town. And he's like, can we speak yeah. privately? And the mayor's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Can we? Can we maybe go into the hallway and do it? <laughs> and then the mayor just looks at him. Nothing. And it's everybody so stands completely still, <laughs> like, yeah. like uh, I'm not moving. Such a strange moment. And then, of course, more people come in and kind of interrupt the whole yeah. thing. But well, and everything that people do in the room is is weird and kind of rude. Like the girls actually bring a dish of meatballs, right? Meat dumplings. Yeah, and. So the mayor grabs a spoon and tucks in. He sits down and starts eating by himself. There are like 10 other people in the room and he's not sharing. The guys from next door bring beer and he takes the beer and opens it in two cups and doesn't share with the guys who brought it. Yeah. Like it's just two cups for the. Uh, yeah, it's ridiculous. I'm now at an hour twenty nine. Uh, hour 29 and a half hour 29 30 and that's the first time the shot moves and they all leave yeah that's when they the, decide to go out to the uh, tree yeah. nearly a 10 minute shot uh, of just them in the room it didn't feel like 10 minutes at the time no and it actually felt. i i didn't even remember that it was a single shot like that was another one yeah. where i just because so many odd things kept happening i guess in my head i just kept thinking that it's just other elements of the story and and i in my head i was thinking there were cuts but yeah i'm not surprised now that there weren't interesting very interesting um, way to tell the story yeah fascinating any other big moments you want to talk about or shall we uh start running through some names well i i just want to go back to the science fiction angle of this because it is oh, yeah, part of the soviet science that. fiction and i just don't know if it is i mean i find it to be really a, a kind of a fantastical mystery that is like i said lynchian it is very um it, it it feels very much like um i don't want to say it's a social commentary so much but it's it is really i mean it is a social commentary it's just done in this kind of absurdist sort of way where nothing makes sense it feels like a dream it's one of those films that feels like a dream i don't know mm -hmm. if we can call it science fiction since nothing comes across as anything that's, that says it's a, a lot of fiction not a lot of science right, right. uh yeah i struggle with that and i think that's pro probably why i because i mean neither has seen the movie and 
no, uh, before yeah. we picked it. And um, but it it's it is one of those movies that doesn't it doesn't really fit the science fiction thing. It's a fantasy, but uh, yeah, there's there's no, and that's why I keep I kept wanting around every corner. I was like, okay, when's the science part? Yeah, when's the, when's when is the it science? gonna turn out that it's a robot town or something? Yeah, just give me one single <laughs> robot, just a robot <laughs> with skis, right? <laughs> But I mean, it didn't bother me that it wasn't science fiction because like the other two films in this series, it definitely felt like we are using these films to comment on what is happening in Russia. I mean, this one certainly is later. This one's coming out in the time of, of, uh, I mean, Gorbachev was, uh, was in power and there was the whole perestroika thing and there, the glasnost Glasnost, and definitely this film is looking at what that means to Russia and the Soviet Union. And I found that to be really interesting, the way that it that everything was constructed and and told. So it while it isn't necessarily science fiction, I do find it to be a really interesting view and insight into Soviet um just kind of the the way that thought was about uh Mm -hmm. kind of their society at the time very interesting yeah yeah i agree uh interesting director uh karen shaknazarov uh is um he said (laughs) he actually said that he lamented a little bit the fall of the soviet um censorship board because in absence of a market economy of film to replace it it made filmmaking in Russia very, very difficult. And um, I, I think that's an interesting, uh, interesting perspective because this movie was made in those gap years. Right. Which is like after like a, the movie could not have been made three years prior um, because of what it's talking about. Right. What it's all about. Um, and uh, its level of commentary is is very high. Uh, and yet you know it it is challenging to get it made and get it seen because there's no there's there's limited other infrastructure and so i think that's interesting this is one where i really wish that i could have found some information about how it did at the box office like especially yeah. the the soviet box office was this something that that people flocked to was it something that was popular and and people were really drawn to i just i couldn't find that information but how interesting would it have been to see what they thought of it at the time. Yeah, truly. He was awarded uh, just just a year after this. Uh, even though this, we're not calling this science fiction per se, Shak Nazarov did win an award by the European Science Fiction Society as uh, um, in 1989 for Best Author and Screenwriter in the Soviet Union, Soviet Union at Eurocon. So I think that while this film may not necessarily fit in with what we're our expectations are for science fiction or what we were thinking the film would be. I perhaps part of that is because Shak Nazarov is somebody who has done a bit in the science fiction realm. And maybe that's why. Yeah, right. So I, I really liked his, uh, I appreciated his direction, his choices. I mean, we've talked about some of the tools that he employs uh, in, in putting the film on frame. I, I, I really liked it. I, I haven't seen anything else that he's done. Um, and, uh, but uh, but I'm interested in exploring some more. Yeah, he still is an active filmmaker. I mean, he the yeah. most recently made a film in 2017 called Anna Karenina Vronsky's Story. So he's uh, he's born in 1956, Andy. He's not that much older than we are. <laughs> he's 68. I, I'm not that close to him. <laughs> 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 all right. All right. Uh, so, uh, Alexander Borodansky, uh, Borodiansky, uh, was a co, uh, screenwriter on this one, who was very busy. They've worked together a number of times, um, on, on some other projects, but, uh, Borodiansky is, has written, uh, he's got 53, uh, writing credits and is, uh, currently filming Bansu right now, another film that he has, uh, written. So, uh, he's a very busy pen. Yeah, uh, I, I this is one of those where I feel like I, I feel like he's I can say he's a solid writer, screenwriter. I just wish I got more of the jokes like the 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 
you know. And, and that's, I think, that's going to be a challenge, I think, with films like this that, and, and yeah. I know there are other films like this around the world. In fact, I'm sure there are some from the U.S. where you watch it. And especially when it comes to social commentary, if it's if it's critiquing a very specific uh, period or a country or a thing like that, it, it's going to definitely make sense to those people who are in it and maybe people outside of it who have looked into it and have read about it. But I think the larger populace, especially as you watch this without, like if we if we had been talking about this without having looked up anything, I think it would be a very different conversation. It would have been like, yeah. what was going on with this thing? Right. Like this is definitely one of those films that makes more sense once you have read a little bit about it and and understand it. So I absolutely think that uh, Shak Nazarov and uh, Borodyansky do a, a great job of crafting this really peculiar story and this strange world that that Varakin has entered. But yeah, it's definitely, it is one of those that you do need to kind of have some background for. What did you think of uh, Leonid Filatov, who played Varakin? He's so great. What a terrific everyman, right? Like he just, I feel like we need him as the straight man for all of the weirdness that's going on around him. And uh, from the moment he sees the naked secretary, you realize, like, you're in good hands in that stead. He is a just sort of a introverted, nebbishy uh, uh, Joe Nobody. And he's he is our vessel for this this city. And the camera doesn't particularly care that much about him. Like you already said, like, it doesn't matter if he's in the scene <laughs> or not. Uh, and so I, I really liked him. I thought he was fantastic. He was such a great face. I mean, he was one of those actors that was like, oh, I wonder if he's still around because I'd love to see him in more stuff. But no, he uh, did pass away at the age of 56 in 2003. Um, interestingly, his uh, Wikipedia entry uh, says he was a Soviet and Russian actor, director, poet, and pamphleteer. <laughs> what What is a pamphleteer? Someone who d- wow. writes and distributes pamphlets? Andy, <laughs> you said that, and I had a brief glimpse of our future. <laughs> Are we going to become pamphleteers? Is that I the sort of feel of like pod- pamphleteering, like podcasting, is the new pamphleteering anyway? <laughs> oh, here you go, pamphleteer, a writer of pamphlets, especially ones of a political and controversial nature. There you go. Yes, indeed. There you go. Yes, indeed. Pot Andy Nell. Here lies Andy Nelson, podcaster and pamphleteer. <laughs> it's got a ring to it. It does. Uh, if if I could put Mouseketeer on there too, then I, <laughs> that's all I would need. Uh, oh, that's man. good. Who else uh, stuck out to you? I, you know, I think the rest of the faces work really well in context of the story. I don't know if any of them are. Uh, you know, ones that I, I would just want to shout out to because I think that they all they all did fine in their roles. You know, I, whether it was the, you know, the cook that uh, he was uh, determined to be the son of or the writer or the prosecutor or the factory director or Anna or the engineer or whoever it was like, I, I felt like everybody was just they did a great job of being in on the joke in this peculiar little yeah. film so I, I i liked the rest of the faces but i i really think that filatov is the standout because he is he is our um surrogate in context of this story camera nikolai nemolyaev wow we almost got that <laughs> i don't know not really i don't know how you'd say that either yeah. he would not have turned his head if i'd screamed that in a crowded <laughs> subway i again speaking to how shak nazarov structured the script i really think that uh, nemolyaev uh shot the film really well just a lot of kind of the the grays and just like the the way that the color scheme worked everything it was just it was a beautifully kind of uh simple in its kind of plain boring city vibe to everything that also managed to make every all the weird moments just they felt even that much more amplified i i thought yeah very successful i think that the thing that we have going for us in a movie like this is that it like even here we are 30 years later we have no expectation of it to look any different than it looks yeah like this film is going to age well it's part of a category of films going to age well because our cultural expectation of post-soviet union russia is that it looks like this and so that's, you know, both a disservice to the country, which actually does 
it, it was filmed in color that isn't gray and green. Uh, but but that's that's what we're saddled with as a sort of a, a sense memory of it. Yeah, right, right. So, uh, music, Edward Artemev. I thought the music worked. Uh, I, I didn't I can't yeah. I can't recall it now, but it worked in context of the film. Atmospheric, less thematic. Yes. Exactly. Well, uh, we are, as you say, they didn't make any sequels. We got no budget. Didn't we already talked about the big award? No, were actually, there, more than that? there are a few. There were a few awards that it did uh, that it All did right. garner um, at, at the Chicago Film Festival in 1989. It ended up winning the Gold Hugo Award for the best international feature film at the Valladolid International Film Festival. Ninety eight, it won the Silver Prize, and I already said that Shak Nazarov did win that European Science Fiction Society Award. And interestingly, this film was submitted as the Soviet entry for the Best Foreign Language Film uh, for the 62nd Academy Awards. It didn't end up getting accepted as a nominee. But I think that speaks interestingly that even at the time, the Soviet... And I'm I'm still always somewhat unclear, and I'm surprised we didn't really talk uh, or try to figure out more of this when we did our uh, Best Foreign Language Films or Foreign Language Films nominated for Best Picture Series. Who is it who's really picking the film that is yeah. going to be representative of that year when they submit to the Academy Awards for any particular year. Uh, I'm curious who that body was, especially for in the world of um, uh, Soviets. This was submitted, uh, but it didn't get accepted. So uh, that would have been interesting to see um, had it um, had it been. The advocacy group that is that is you know didn't exist at the time that was doing this, like Mosfilm. What is the the Russian Film Institute? Um, was I think new, but I you know without a the censorship board <laughs> reviewing and picking films, that's who I imagine. I imagine this this would go all the way up to Gorbachev, right? So he's going to pick the film to go represent the country. Yeah, right. I, like I, I wonder how that was determined. I just don't know. Well, uh, I'm I'm thrilled we watched it, even if it doesn't fit quite so handily uh, in our Soviet sci-fi series. It, it was a delightful movie to watch for me it was a great experience and i you know maybe we should maybe we should rank it yeah i mean it was a really fun movie it was it was such a weird movie i think that's why i enjoyed watching it like i was never bored it was always like wow what is around the next corner something mm-hmm. interesting and strange and i didn't understand it after it ended but i did really grasp more after i read more about it so i'm glad i watched it really interesting film and yes Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart. It should take you straight to City Zero in the Flickchart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. And in Flickchart, it is listed in Russian as Zero Grad. Zero Grad. So Zero Grad or the Birdcage. Uh, zero Grad. Yeah, I will pick that as well. Zero Grad or Seven Samurai. Oh. oh, Seven Samurai. Yeah, Seven Samurai. Zero Grad or Interstellar. I'm going probably Interstellar. Yeah, definitely Interstellar. Zero Grad or Sunshine. Ah, Sunshine. Yeah, I'll go Sunshine. Zero Grad or The Lavender Hill Mob. Zero Grad. Really? I'm going to say Lavender Hill yeah. Mob. All right. Let's do it. Ready? Let's do it. One. One. Two. two. Three. Three. Paper. 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 Rock. Hmm? I cover your rock. Zero sir. Grad takes it. Zero Grad or True Romance. True Romance. True Romance. Zero Grad or Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, indeed. Zero Grad or Adaptation. 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 Zero Grad or Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Say like Gone Girl. That lands Zero Grad in spot 228 on our chart. 228 out of 488 lands it at a 53%. That's too low, frankly. You thought otherwise, sir. Apparently, I thought exactly the same thing because really? I landed in spot 2125 out of 4550, which is also a 53%. Wow. Okay. Well, clearly, I I landed on some easy choices, and it gave uh, Zero Grad a 
a, a real leg up on my list. I landed at 179 out of 1484, which is wow. an 88%. Uh, if I, yeah, cow. if I am to go by uh, the algorithm here oh, and uh, head over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be rated, according to Flickchart, a four and a half star movie for me. Um, I had a great time. I'm torn on four and a half stars. I think I, you know, when I finished the movie, I said, well, that's a four star and a heart. Easy. I, I had a, a great time at this movie. I don't know if it's a four and a half star movie. I don't know if I want it up there quite so high. Well, if I were to rank it according to mine, it would be a two and a half star, uh, yeah, which is, is definitely too low for me. But I have a hard time going above three and a half. So I'm going to do three and a half with a heart. Oh, well, you just cinched it for me. It's a four and a half with a heart. <laughs> <laughs> I knew if yeah. I did that, you were going to go on the high end. So I'm that's funny. Fight ranking. <laughs> so you sure are. Well, that puts it at a, four stars in a heart over on our chart on Letterboxd. And uh, yeah, you know, this is the end of the uh, Soviet science fiction series that uh, that you put together. But I will say, this has been a fascinating glimpse into. A genre or just a world of film that I have not looked at before. And I certainly would be game to jump back into this world uh, with some other films down the road. Oh, and there was a, a the list we came up with was fantastic. And now that we've we've kind of dipped our toes into some of these movies, I'm I'm super interested to moving into the in, further into the 90s, frankly. But there is a lot of of territory in the 70s and 80s that uh, that we have access to thanks to, you know, YouTube and rights confusion and it's it's great easy one to what play was with. that one that i was pushing for amphibian man amphibian man there was amphibian <laughs> I man. I think just... there was another one kunzaza <laughs> that was another one that was supposedly very good um yeah. yeah it's a great list so yeah lots of stuff to watch so uh hopefully we shall return to it in the future but next we are actually going to be looking at some uh kind of a, a period in Oliver Stone's career, we're looking at Oliver Stone in the 80s, both as a writer, director, and writer-director, and really the journey that he took from kind of the early in his career through the point where he really kind of became Oliver Stone and was making what we would call Oliver Stone films. This is the Oliver Stone origin story series. It is. <laughs> I guess you could call it that, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it should be fun. We're starting with The Hand from 1981 and we're going all the way through Born on the Fourth of July in 1989. That's a lot of films. Ten films. It's a it's a hefty series. A busy boy. Busy boy. Be an interesting exploration when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Um, okay. I I am spoiled on yours, and so I'm going to go ahead and go first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to end on screaming. <laughs> and I will not be screaming. I actually have a, I actually have a pair of uh, Letterboxd reviews um, that are very short. Uh, the first one is from uh, Jay Mathias, who says, like Kafka doing Inherent Vice, a bureaucratic nightmare wrapped in a freewheeling absurdity that can't stop making excuses for its endless nonsense, a poignant meditation on the decline and death of the Soviet Union, if you're inclined to read it that way. I, I like that just because he's, <laughs> he likens it to Kafka doing Inherent Vice. That's funny yeah. to me. Uh, the, <laughs> and I, I think that that idea of making excuses for endless nonsense, I didn't see it that way, but I can see how somebody would. Um, which sure. takes me to MJ Nichols, who gives it three stars and says, it's mildly absurdist and satirical comedy that promises more oddness than it delivers. Hmm. Somebody who wants more, a little bit more of your lynch. Andy. More Lynch, more strange people dancing in boxes and whatnot. Right. Okay. All right. Well, I've got a uh, one that doesn't have a star rating, but Charming Potato sure screamed this review uh, watching it back in 2020. I do not know how to describe this movie without caps lock. Even then, all I got is, whoa, what? Hey, now, holy shit, I 
Wow, yikes! Holy goddamn hell! WTF! I think this might be a masterpiece, but I also feel like I spent an hour inhaling paint fumes! Thank you, Charming Potato. <laughs> Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.